And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. All right, we're going to spend the next while uh, reflecting on this text together. If you uh, caught the service last week, if you were here, what we began to talk about is how the great salvation of God that God has brought to his people has all these impacts on our daily life. And we talked about how it leads us to hope and how it leads us to holiness. But the work of Christ on the cross leads us to more than hope and holiness. And today's text begins with the word and. And what that means is Peter's not yet done expounding, explaining what the implications of what Christ has done. There's, there's more. There's more to see. There's more to know. More to live out. And indeed, there's always more, isn't there? Every week. And I, and I think the gospel and, and really the whole scriptures can be understood as this, this kind of ocean. See, with an ocean, you get, a, you get a wide variety of environments. Along the edge, there are coves and bays and sandy beaches where, you know, small children, toddlers can wade out and play safely. But there, of course, are also depths to the ocean where even, even to this day, our most sophisticated scientific instruments can barely reach. We understand still very little of, of what life looks like there. And in the same way, a young child may understand the basics of the gospel. You know, Jesus loves me, this I know. Yet the oldest, the most mature among us is still sort of learning things about the implications of the gospel 70, 80, 90 years after first believing in Jesus. So in many ways, every sermon, every text begins with and, because <laughs> there's all, oh, and this, there's, there's always something more to know. Well, what are the ands for this week? What, what aspects of life are, are, is Peter diving into? He's going to argue that the gospel, the good news about Jesus, leads us into a life of fear, a life of love, and a life of longing. Fear, love, and longing, and I'll, and I'll show you where that is. But so far in his letter, what Peter's done so far is he's spent, he spent a bunch of verses explaining what has God done for us in Christ, and he, even as he explains what we should do in response, he continues to remind us of who God is. But look with me at verse 17. He says, and if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear. Okay, Peter's making an argument. He's telling these, these believers, these new believers, if you do this one thing, 
then you should also be doing this other thing. He's making what we call an if-then argument. You know, Peter could have written software or something in a different era. But he's saying, if, if you pray to God as father and judge, if you do this, then you should also be living with fear. Now think about that for a moment. The, the image of God as father, that's probably familiar to us. One of the most common ways the scriptures speak about God. And for many of us, picturing God as father is, is comforting. It's positive. Yet also many of us, or, or how many of us think of God as judge? And if we do think of God as judge, I think for many of us that feels like a negative thing. You only appear before a judge when you've done something wrong. How much comfort, how much encouragement do you get considering God as a judge who's, who's evaluating, who's, who's weighing your actions? But I'd like you to remember Peter's context. He's writing to people undergoing difficult trials. They've been treated unjustly. They've suffered persecution and difficulty because of their faith. To such people, a judge is actually a very comforting image because it means that the evil that's been done to them will be dealt with. See, I think lots of us, we don't like thinking of God as a judge because we picture ourselves as as the defendant. We're the accused. And now in some senses, you know, biblically that's accurate. But I think we might picture God as judge while picture ourselves as the one filing charges or as the one seeking justice. See, to a people who are sort of on the wrong end of injustice, a good judge is incredibly reassuring. It means some wrongs are gonna get righted. It means some justice is gonna be paid out. And so to these people, Peter says, who cry out to God as both father and judge, Peter says, conduct yourselves with fear. Now, why would he say that? Many of us don't think of fear when we think of God. But Peter gives us a reason. He says in verse 18, knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. That word ransomed, it's one of those marketplace terms. Peter picks it up here. um, And it was used for when a person would buy, buy, buy a slave to release him or her from slavery. Often this would be the next of kin. You know, your cousin, if you get into slavery because of your debts, your cousin comes along and buys you out to set you free or whatever. But uh, other times other people would do it, uh, whether for means of generosity. Sometimes temple workers would take some of their offerings and, and buy slaves back to set them free. But, but Peter's point is, at, at, one of, at one point, all of us were in captivity to the ways that we inherited from our ancestors. He may be talking about human philosophies. He may just be speaking about the sin nature of itself. We aren't exactly sure. But he says, you know, by hook or by crook, one way or another, every human ends up enslaved to sin. And some of those who are in captivity are bought back and released. By what? Not by gold, not by silver. The usual means but by the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And Peter likens Jesus' blood to a kind of currency, a method of payment. That feels unsettling, (laughs) but Peter is just just explaining that that the reality is our sin had created a debt, had created a captivity. It had to be undone before we could go free, and the blood of Jesus spilled on the cross is what paid your debt and set you free. So returning to kind of our original point, Peter says, if we have a father who judges, a savior who bought us back, Why is that a reason to conduct ourselves with fear? Well, fear has a number of meanings. Fear sometimes means terror. But in older usage, fear can also be used for reverence or awe. So which one are we talking about? If we only mean living with terror, how does that fit with the other things we know about God? He's loving and good. He's a father, all that stuff. But if we only mean awe or reverence... Well, it's kind of watered down from what we know of God's power and his judging and his, uh, his justice. So which is it? Is it terror or awe? Well, maybe think of it this way. 
I was out driving in the country uh, a few weeks ago on my way to visit some friends. It was dark, it was nighttime, and the roads were unfamiliar to me. And in addition, that particular night, you know, if you've ever been out when there's sort of warm air, but there's snow on the ground, it gets extremely foggy. And it was a very kind of like a low-lying area, very flat. It made the road difficult to see, and visibility was extremely reduced. Now, I'm a reasonably confident driver. I don't know where I rank on the confidence scale, but, you know, I've never had a serious accident or a van has winter tires on it, you know, whatever. Uh, In such conditions, with a reasonably confident driver like myself or maybe like yourself, how should you drive? Well, you slow down when it's really foggy. You drive more carefully. You don't kind of flip extensively through the radio, you know, looking for a good song or whatever. You give even, even more than usual your full attention to the road. You're on extra alert. But what if someone stopped up ahead? What if someone pulled over? You don't have as much, you know, time. You give an extra double check at every four-way stop just in case someone is coming barreling through. A confident driver in difficult conditions drives with a healthy fear that prevents them from, you know, doing something foolish. See, when it comes to God, Christians are on one hand supposed to be confident and joyful. Yes, that's true. God really did work. He really does change us. He really does make us different. The precious blood of Jesus really was spilled. Yes, be confident in that. But also, he's a judge, and he will review every act and word and thought. And so this genuine fear of consequences and judgment keeps us from driving foolishly. It keeps us from speeding through life, making dumb decisions, And so we sort of live with this combination, a reverent awe that we were brought back from slavery by the precious blood of Jesus. And then Peter spends three verses emphasizing who Christ was and what he did. And all he says there is, it wasn't a random buying back as if God one day was like, I've got a good idea. No, no, he says from all eternity past, from all the foundations of the world, it was always planned for Christ to die on behalf of his people. Therefore, if you're a Christian, you don't, don't live recklessly, don't live wildly, live, live carefully and thoughtfully. Be confident, yes, you know, but drive, drive cautiously through life. Part two, a life of love. If you look at verse 22, Peter continues to build on this theme that because of what Christ has done in our lives, there are responses that are required. And we talked about last week, hope and holiness, and now a life of reverent fear, what we just talked about. And now Peter includes a life of brotherly love or sincere brotherly love. And verse 22 tells us, since a Christian's soul has been purified, then there is to be sincere brotherly love, loving one another earnestly from a pure heart. What does it mean to be a Christian? He says, it means that one's life is now turned towards the love of others. I think it's interesting, up until now, everything that Peter has commanded could be fulfilled all by yourself. I think it's pretty, it's possible that you to be hopeful and holy and, and fearful all on your own. But now we've arrived at a command that's impossible to fulfill without others. If you are all by yourself, whom will you love? And I think this verse, along with many others in the scriptures, is a helpful reminder for us uh, on the times when we get frustrated with the church or with church people. And I think there's a tendency, I mean, particularly among younger generations, but I don't want to generalize too much, but there's, there's this tendency to think, I can have a relationship with God apart from the church. I can believe in Jesus. I can follow his commands without, without the trappings or, or the annoyance, the burden of a local church. And, and like in some ways, that's possible. But all over the place, the New Testament does assume you will be in relationship with other Christians. It assumes there is someone in your life that you will be required to love. 
Because normally we don't tell people to love those who are already very lovable. It's like, yeah, if they're already lovable, you already probably do it uh, automatically. You need to be reminded to love those who are difficult to love. And so the local church, as flawed as it may be, as large or small as, as, as it may be, these are the places we live out these commands. This is the place where you practice Philadelphia. That's the word there, brotherly love. It's in the church. See, what Peter has in mind in verse 22, it's not neighbor love. That's commanded in lots of other places, but not this one. Here he is telling Christians to love each other, to love brothers and sisters inside the church and to love them earnestly. And of course, that word earnestly, it's familiar to you. It means wholehearted effort. Love like your life depends on it. Why put forth such an effort? Well, because love gets hard. You know, it's hard to love church people. <laughs> but sometimes church people hurt each other. They deal out wounds. They, they act imperfectly. You need a robust love. Loving one another earnestly involves more than small talk after church. It involves more than fuzzy feelings. I mean, it may involve those things, but it's a lot more than that. It involves forgiveness, service, patience, kindness, Self-control. <laughs> these are a few of our not favorite things. Like, it, it's hard to love. These, it, it takes a lot. But helpfully, Peter gives us a reason to love. He doesn't just insist on it. Philadelphia, go do it. You know, he, he gives us a reason. If you look in verse 23, he says, Since, because you've been born again of this imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Now, what does he mean? Well, he's, he says, I'm not talking about a perishable seed, which is kind of like a kind of blunt reference to human sperm and eggs that create new humans. He's like, you already had that happen once. You had that human birth. That, that's fine. You've been born again of an imperishable seed. Now, now it sounds like we're in a Marvel movie or a Greek myth or whatever, but Peter simply means that, you, that your new life in Christ is indestructible. It's eternal. There, there's nothing that can damage it or destroy it. Unlike your human life, which can be destroyed and damaged in all kinds of ways, your life with Christ, it's untouchable. Thieves can't steal it. Rust, you know, can't corrode it. You know, Google can't delete it. Like, it, it's untouchable. If you are a Christian, you're born into this new indestructible life. How? He says, by the living and abiding word of God. And, and then after that quote uh, out of the book of Isaiah, that this gospel, this good news that was preached to them. So let's just put a few of these pieces together, because basically this is a whole a long run-on sentence from Peter. But how do you live a life of love towards brothers and sisters in the church? Peter says, by remembering that you heard the gospel preached by the love of another, that you believed it because God had softened your heart, that you, rece you received it, God in his mercy has given you this new indestructible life. So this is how you preach to yourself, this is how you talk to yourself when you find it hard to love others in the church, that you recall what God did for you in love and ask for that same power to love your brother or sister. And if you have a hard time, you're like, well, well still, what does that look like? Well, in chapter 2, verse 1, he kind of goes on to explain, but you know, in our copy of the scriptures, there's this division between uh, the end of chapter 1 and the beginning of chapter 2. We have paragraph breaks and headings. But when Peter originally sent this letter, th those things didn't exist. Verse 25 just continues straight into 2 verse 1. And there, Peter is telling them to put away malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander. And if you're like, well, I don't know what all those words mean, let me just give you a, a couple quick definitions. Malice, maliciousness, it means ill will towards another person. Deceit. Uh, means guile or trickery intended to hurt, hypocrisy, falseness, envy, seeking advancement at, at the uh, cost to another, 
slander, the telling of false stories, the unfair disparagement of another. And if you notice, all of these sins are committed against other humans. There's this social dimension to love. There's a social dimension to sin. In order to live with others in love, these sins must be put away or they're going to destroy the social fabric of the church. If you want to live with love, he says, you ought to avoid responding to disagreement and division with these things. I was considering uh, this teaching about loving church people this week. Uh, I, spoke, I was talking to a counselor I've been seeing on and off. And we talk about lots of stuff together, uh, marriage, kids, church life, like all, all sorts of things. But I was wrestling with this question brought up by this text of what do we do with the hurt that we experience in church? And it wasn't just me. It wasn't you know, talking about any of you. But it just, as, I help, as I help other people like yourselves process difficult relationships, how does this all work? And in the process of talking to, to this counselor, I remembered a man I knew a number of years ago who had given quite a bit to his local church. Again, not ours, not, not anyone you know. Uh, he put in all kinds of time and effort uh, at his church. And at the end of this long and difficult season, he was unceremoniously dumped for someone different. The, the role that he thought he was going to get in the church, that, that he'd been promised in many ways, was taken away in kind of a, a backhanded way. Now, what do you do in such a circumstance when brothers and sisters in the church like really wound you and it really hurts? How do you respond in love? Well, what you can do is you can talk to your, talk to your heart and ask these questions. How many times have I unceremoniously dumped God when I thought something better was coming along? And how many times have I taken from God what is clearly due him and, and given it to someone else? Yeah, how did God respond when I did that? And how did God respond when I realized my sin and, re and returned to him? Was he malicious towards me? Did he ridicule me? Did he pretend, uh, or did he offer me only pretend love in order to make himself look good? No, God loved us purely. He spoke kindly to us. His gentleness and kindness is what led to our repentance. I'm not saying loving other people in the church is going to be emotionally easy, and I'm not saying you need to stay in toxic situations. I'm trying to say the resources of Christ himself the example of his life, the power of the Holy Spirit can give you what you need to love other people in the church. This is what Peter wants from us, a life of fear, a life of love, and third, a life of longing. Chapter 2, verse 2. Peter tells them, I want you to act like newborn infants and to long for pure spiritual milk. Now, lots of you have noticed there's lots of little babies in our church, lots of little kids I know that many of you mothers have relatively fresh memories of what it's like to try to nurse a newborn baby. And that's what Peter compares us to here. Not just toddlers, not just little kids, but newborns. And if you've had a newborn or been around a newborn, you'll understand they eat all the time. Daytime, nighttime, you know, great moments, awkward moments. It doesn't, doesn't matter to a baby. They will not be rushed. They will not be put off. They want milk, you know, and they, and they want it now. And many new mothers are shocked by, wow, it takes so much time, you know, just to keep this baby fed, which is a great privilege on one hand and also great responsibility, burden, you know, whatever, whatever word you want to use on some of the harder days. But look, milk is all a newborn baby gets. No other meals, no other nutrients. In milk, it's everything they need for life. God has so designed mothers and babies that this one thing, this one supply can be enough for the first few months of life at least. Peter tells these Christians their lives should be characterized with the same kind of longing for spiritual nourishment 
that babies have for milk. In fact, the, the word Peter uses here might be better translated crave. See, the desire is not wistful. It's not minor. It's major. It's a, it's a nearly uncontrollable longing. Like a newborn baby, when they crave milk, it's like, I'm going to start yelling. Like things are going to get loud here until I get it. He says, in the same way, Christians should crave pure spiritual nourishment, pure spiritual milk. Now, what is that? Well, if you kind of remember, if we remove the chapter numbers and heading titles, it's pretty clear because he just referred to it. It refers to both God's word and, and the good news of the gospel. See, remember from the end of, of chapter one that these, these Turkish Christians, these Asian believers, they were, they were born again by means of the word and the preaching of the gospel. They began their new life this way, and, and, and it's clear now, Peter's telling us, this is also the way they grow up into the Christian life, these same means. If we are newborn babies, then we only get one meal, one kind of nourishment, and that's the word of God and the preaching of the gospel. That is the way we grow up into salvation. And Peter tells us in verse 3, if you have tasted that the Lord is good, you'll understand you need this kind of nourishment. Basically, he means by that, non-Christians don't really get this. It doesn't make a lot of sense if you're not a Christian, why, or if you're, if you're a non-Christian, why would you revere and place such a high value on the scriptures? I've been asked, you know, why would you base your life on this ancient book? But to Christians, he says, who've, who've understood what God is like, what the scriptures, how he uses the scriptures, it makes all the sense in the world, and they, they crave the nourishment of the word of God. Now, let's talk about real life for a moment. Peter said, if you are a Christian, the normal thing is to crave spiritual nourishment. So here's my question. What if you don't? <laughs> what, if, what, if, what if there are days when you'd rather do anything else but read the scriptures? Or there are Sundays maybe even today, where you'd rather be anywhere else but in church. What does that mean? Well, partly it means you're human. <laughs> I think everyone has days like that. But here's, how, here's what I encourage you to do. To view those moments, those feelings, those desires as both information and motivation. Now, here's what I mean. Feelings and desires are best understood as information. It's your body or your mind or your soul telling you something is happening in your current state. Like when you have a large outburst over something minor, it tells you there's something there to be curious about. Like something bothered you, something happened, uh, and now it's, you know, it's really affecting you. Feelings and desires are information. So if you have a hard time getting into the scriptures, if church is drudgery, that's information about the state of your mind or your soul or your body. You don't need to disregard it. You don't need to pretend it isn't there. It's a chance for you to ask God to meet you in that place. I would say unspiritual feelings, their experiences, their information, they're, they're a place to begin, not a reason to stop trying. But I'd also urge you to view that as, a, as motivation, a lack of longing, a lack of craving for spiritual nourishment. It should be a prompt. There is more growth ahead. <laughs> I'm not complete yet. I'm not finished you know, my, my, my whole body and self is, is still being reformed. You know, sometimes we think in giant categories of sin. And we arrive at church on Sunday morning. And it comes to the time of confession. And I'm like, I haven't killed anyone this week. And, you know, I, I, and we think in sort of these, these giant, oh, I haven't stolen $10,000. And is there much to repent for? Is there much to grow? But I think unspiritual feelings and thoughts are chances for you to ask God to change your heart. To ask God to make you new, to make you different. 
If, if, if you've had a hard week and, and your, your heart and your soul and your mind feel as dry as a desert, that's a, that's a perfect opportunity for you to ask God to, to change you, to be different. Now, what might it look like? What, or what are we aiming at? What does a Christian who craves pure spiritual milk look like? Well, this week, uh, Matthijs, uh, who works for the church, and I, we were talking about this text, and uh, he told me a story about J.I. Packer, who's a, a famous uh, theologian and writer. A couple, of, uh, a couple of years ago, or a number of years ago, while he was still alive, he came to Ottawa to do some speaking. And uh, as part of his visit, he went to attend a church service where he was not taking part. He was just there to worship. And as he got settled into his seat and got his bulletin ready, uh, J.I. Packer leaned over. He was with a young man who was sort of his handler, you know, was driving him around for the trip. And he leaned over to this young man and said, or he was, he was on this side, he leaned over to this young man and said, oh good, we get to hear the word of God preached today. Now, J.I. Packer, he didn't know the preacher. He was in a city far from home. It wasn't his church. And look, it's J.I. Packer. He was way smarter and way better read and probably way more mature and a way better preacher than anyone who was going to come to the front of that church. But here was a Christian who had learned what it's like to long for pure spiritual nourishment. He wasn't there out of obligation. He's in his, like, 90s or whatever. He's there because it was a joy and a delight for him to learn and to grow. Now you're like... That sounds impossible. <laughs> that sounds distant. That's okay. Peter's point is, this is where we're aimed. To be people who long for pure spiritual milk, to take delight in the word of God and the preaching of the gospel. Now look, let's conclude with this. Sometimes a Christian life can feel like a giant to-do list. Each Sunday you come in, you sit down, and the preacher reminds you of something else you aren't doing very well. It's like, yes, great, I should be kinder. I should be loving my neighbors more. Maybe sometimes you come in and it feels like and, 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 or do, do, do. And as I explained at the beginning, that sense of and comes partly because of the limitlessness of Christ's work, its effects in our lives. Yes, that's true. There's always more to learn and apply. But I would remind you, sort of the, the finishing taste here, as the, as the Apostle Peter does, that the main word of the Christian life is not and, and it's not do, but it's done. See, see, the main word to the people of God is not do these things and God will bless you. That the main word from Peter is Christ has done for you. Learn to bask in his love. Learn to live it out. If this command, if this list of commands feels overwhelming, perhaps today is just a, joy, a day to enjoy what Christ has done for you. Christ has worked and we enjoy the benefits of his work. We only ever do in response to what he has done. Let's pray together. God, we thank you for this letter from Peter to encourage us, to show us the way that, that you want us to live, how these commands apply in the church. Help us understand more and more what Christ has done. May his love enter us and overflow out of us onto everyone around us. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.